so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you would open our hearts to receive your word. And I pray that we would hold fast to the truth and that we would avail ourselves of the means of grace that you have given. Lord, that we would remain, that we would seek, that we would long for you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, first, John wants his readers to be aware of the times. Be aware of the times. Now, the apostle writes, children, it is the last hour. And seeing that he wrote these words some 2,000 years ago, there are probably some people who are scratching their heads. Certainly throughout the ages, and even right after Jesus warned, there was an expectation from many that the time was, was, was running out, the time was running. But now here we are, 2,000 years later, and it's the last times. Biblically and theologically speaking, John is exactly right. This is what the author of Hebrews says. God, at many times and in many ways, spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he is spoken by his son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter quotes Amos, uh, or excuse me, the prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2, and he's trying to make sense of Pentecost and what is happening, and all these people are speaking languages that they had not previously known, and they're understandable by the people who are there. And he writes, and he quotes, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Again, uh, considering the person of Jesus Christ, Peter says that according to God's plan, Jesus was made manifest in the last times for our sake. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. So we put all of these together and what we see is that the coming of Jesus inaugurates this epoch known as the last days. Friends, from the time of Jesus' coming to the time of His return, His second coming, we are in the last days. And no one knows how long it's going to be. There's a lot of speculation about how long it's going to be. There's a lot of people making predictions regularly about how long the end times, the last days, are going to be. But ultimately, no one knows. And it's important for us to know that the Apostle John here is not trying to speculate. Furthermore, he's not just trying to scare us into a decision. He's not trying to say, hey, it's the last times, you better get right with God. He's not trying to say that. He's just stating a reality. We live in the end times. Now, what we do know is that Jesus' coming, His first coming, changes everything. Everything about this world is changed because Jesus has come. No one can ultimately escape His influence. No one will ultimately deny Him. However, right now, people are blinded and people deny Him. But Jesus is the most significant reality ever. And His coming changes everything. And His second coming will change everything. So what does this mean? What this means for us is urgency. The last days means gospel urgency. The last days means gospel urgency. Now, urgency to rescue 
urgency to be there and to love and to give and to serve those who are lost in their trespasses and sins. There is an urgency. You know, earlier this month, the deadliest mass shooting on U.S. soil took place in Las Vegas. And can you imagine how uh, dreadful, what an experience that would have been to see that happen, to be there, to experience that firsthand. But as the, as the days went on, these hero stories started to emerge. Stories of how people would, would run for cover, but then go back in and pick up people who were injured and take them to safety. They'd bring them to safety. There was this urgency on the part of some to go in to make a difference, to go in to help, to go in to serve, to go in to give, to risk their lives even for the sake of others. There was an urgency. And friends, the death that some died, that many died, the tragic death that many died in that shooting in Las Vegas is nothing compared to the death that those who are apart from Jesus Christ face. It's nothing compared to it. The last days, friends, mean gospel urgency because there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. We, the church, we are called to go and to rescue the lost with the message of the gospel. The message that God became man. And that Jesus Christ lived perfectly. And that because of our sin, we are condemned before God. But Jesus paid the sin debt on the cross. And we have the good news to take, to share, to bring the hope of life, the hope of forgiveness of reconciliation with God. But the question is, will we speak this? You know, the end times means gospel urgency. And John wasn't trying to speculate, but he was telling his readers to be aware of the times. He was warning them specifically about the antichrists who have come, about the false prophets. He says, you've heard that antichrist is coming, but let me tell you, antichrists are here. Antichrists are here. That word antichrist literally means against Christ. Now, John is differentiating between who Paul describes as the man of lawlessness, the capital A Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians, and the many Antichrists, the many false teachers who have come and who are now here who are leading people astray. John's point is closely connected to Jesus's point in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus says that many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. In, in verse 11, chapter 24, verse 11, Jesus is quoted as saying, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So what we see secondly then is, in, is that the last day means the prevalence of deception. The last days means the prevalence of deception. Now it's important to see that when John is referring to these antichrists or these false teachers, they're not wearing costumes. They don't have horns and pitchforks and tail costumes. It's not like you can just tell them who they are from looking at them. No, that's not how they work. In fact, he's saying, look, this is kind of like an inside job. They were, they were, they were part of us. They were here. They were sneaky. That's what he means by verse 19. Again in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What he's saying, he's saying, look, there were people sitting in the church. 
There were people worshiping with the church, but they weren't genuine believers. No, in fact, they were false teachers. To use John's words, they were antichrists, ultimately trying to lead people astray. But they left. They left because ultimately they didn't have a home here. They weren't genuine believers. They weren't the genuine thing. Now, friends, this is how false teaching works. This is false teaching 101. It starts with the truth and it twists it just enough to make it false, but not to draw a ton of attention right away. Take, for example, the Judaizers who followed Paul in his travels and they sought to undo his teaching. Now, they didn't outright deny Jesus. They didn't say, well, forget about Jesus. No, they said, yeah, believe in Jesus, but just know that he's not enough. You really have to obey the Mosaic Law as well. You've got to do some more things because the death of Jesus is not sufficient to make you right with God. You've got to do some things on your own. They just twisted it and they led a lot of people astray. Of course, we've talked about this in the study thus far through 1 John. John was dealing with Gnostic heretics here. Now, we have to understand that during this time in society, there was a philosophy that was almost universally accepted in the Greek world. Okay? Material, physical is evil. But the immaterial, the spiritual, that's the good. So that's what the Gnostics would say. Look, Jesus, he can't really be God. I mean, he's, he's a man. He has a body. Physical stuff, material stuff, it's inherently sinful. It's inherently evil. No, no. This guy, Jesus, yeah, maybe the Spirit of God adopted him at his baptism and left him at the crucifixion, but, you know, God didn't die for us. And salvation really isn't based on atonement for sin, on a blood atonement for sin. It's about this special knowledge. It's about this secret knowledge. They didn't outright reject Jesus. They just reduced him. They diminished him. He wasn't God. He couldn't be God. So we see then, thirdly, the last days means the diminishing of Jesus. The last days means the diminishing of Jesus, right? Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the liar. It's the diminishing of Jesus. And it's not just Gnostics or Judaizers who are guilty of this. I think of Mormons and how they claim to be a Christian faith, yet they diminish Jesus. Reducing him to be a created being and promote ultimately a works-based salvation. I think of Catholicism and the diminishing of Jesus in the role of salvation. Elevating Mary now to co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. And according to Vatican II, an aspect of inclusivism. Saying that the Holy Spirit works through the conscience. And as long as you are true to your own conscience, that you could be saved no matter what you believe. Whether or not you have explicit faith in Jesus Christ or not. And friends, we could go on. You all know I went to Israel recently. I want to show you a couple pictures here. This first picture. Some of you know what this is. This is the Western Wailing Wall right outside the Temple Mount. And there you see Jews who want to be as close to the presence of God where the Holy of Holies once stood. And they pray for the rebuilding of the temple when they pray for the Messiah to come. Friends, the Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus. But there is a diminishing of Jesus, of who he is. And then go to the next slide. This is the mosque on the Temple Mount now. Probably the second most important mosque 
in all of Islam, right there, where the altars, the altar was to worship Jesus, to worship the one true and living God. And Islam diminishes Jesus. You can go back to that slide, please. Islam diminishes Jesus, saying that, yeah, he's a prophet, and he's an important prophet, but he's not the son of God. He's not God incarnate. There's no salvation through him. He plays an important role, but no, it, it really comes through Muhammad. He's the one. He's the most important prophet, and, and Jesus isn't God. Go to the next slide. This is in Ephraim. Ephraim is a city outside of Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem, not far. This is where Gideon grew up. This picture is taken at a broken down old synagogue where there is still worship happening. I don't even know what kind of worship it is. It is a Christian, quote, Christian village. You can see the crosses there. By the way, that's made with blood. There are sacrifices happening on a regular basis at this synagogue still. In fact, if you look just down from that large cross or just over, you can see a handprint. It's a handprint of blood. There are still blood sacrifices taking place there in the name of Christianity. There's a diminishing of Jesus. Jesus' blood is not enough. We have to continue to sacrifice. And by the way, there were altars and statues to Mary just in that same place. Go to the next. What we see in the last days, there is gospel urgency and there is the prevalence of deception and there is the diminishing of Jesus Christ. We could go on, right? Jehovah's Witness, Christian science, any number of Eastern religions. John is concerned, friends, that we would be deceived. And he wants us to recognize false prophets. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John Stott argues that whereas previously John gave us a moral test for the veracity of the Christian faith and the Christian claims, that is to love, right? To love and to live in the light, to live as God is light, right? To, to obey, to practice truth, to walk in righteousness. Here, John is giving us a doctrinal test. Does the teaching about Jesus line up with Scripture? Is He fully God? Is He fully man? Is he the one who accomplishes salvation for sinners? Is salvation found exclusively and explicitly through faith in Jesus Christ? Again, we've noticed in this studies, the Gnostic heretics were teaching that salvation didn't depend on blood sacrifice. It didn't depend on Jesus Christ. It depended on a special, a secretly revealed knowledge. But John is telling us that the only way to know God, the only way to know God the Father is through God the Son. Through faith in the Son. To confess the Son. To confess means to agree. To agree that Jesus is who He says He is. To live for Him. To be found in Him. Fellowship with God depends on what we do with, with Jesus. Fellowship with God depends on what we do with Jesus. Well, this leads us to the second point here. Be confident in God's anointing and God's word. Be confident in God's anointing and God's word. Listen again to verse 20 and then verse 27. But you have been anointed 
by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So we're looking at this idea of anointing now. And then in verse 27, But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So the first thing we see here is this. Christians have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Christians have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, God has anointed us. He's freely given us His Spirit to all who are following Christ, to all who are trusting Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's function is to bear witness about Him. John 15, verse 26. And the Spirit teaches and gives understanding to the followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the Spirit who enables us to accept, to embrace, to understand, and to receive the Word of God. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what he writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That is, Paul's using that word spiritual to say those who have the Holy Spirit. So he's he's contrasting the natural person, the person without the Holy Spirit, the person who's still dead in their sin with the spiritual person. The spiritual person is the one who's been forgiven by God and who has relationship with God, who has been indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see here this anointing. John is saying, you have the anointing of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You are able to understand. In fact, you don't need someone else to teach you. Now, we're going to look at that in a minute. But you don't need someone else to come along and to teach you. That's what he's saying here. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no understanding or embracing of God's Word. Now, this is key. Look at verse 24, if you will. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Okay, so we have this anointing, the Holy Spirit, who indwells, who lives within us. And now he's saying, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, remain in you, stay in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What's he talking about? What is it they heard from the beginning? Friends, it's the apostolic testimony. It is the gospel. We must, friends, hear this. We must hold fast to the gospel to have eternal life. We must hold fast to the gospel to abide in the Father and the Son. John is saying, if you continue to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in His work on the cross as payment for your sin, then you'll be saved. Don't buy into the lie of the Gnostics, John is saying. Don't believe what they're trying to tell you. It's not some special knowledge that only comes to a privileged few. Here it is. Here's the gospel. Just hold on to the gospel. Believe the gospel. Continue in the gospel. You don't need more than Scripture. Hold on to what you've had from the beginning, to the gospel. Let it abide in you, he's saying. 
You don't need something external to Scripture. What you need is truth. What you need is the apostolic testimony. What you need is the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. In fact, in 2 John chapter, excuse me, 2 John verses 9 and 10. Listen to what he writes. Just flip over a page, turn to 2 John verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The teaching of Jesus Christ, the the true gospel, then do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What is he saying? So you don't need a special knowledge. What you need is truth. What you need is the Word of God. What you need is the Gospel. Hold fast to the Gospel. Abide in it. That's what he's telling us. You don't need the special knowledge of the Gnostics. You're not dependent on them. Don't believe their lies that they have some information that's not contained in truth. You have the Holy Spirit. God is teaching you according to the Word. Now, Verse 27, John isn't saying there's no place for Bible teaching, okay? He's not saying there's no place for a pastor. That's not what he's getting at. But what he's saying is that you have what you need in the gospel. You don't need some claim to special knowledge or special revelation that's out there. You don't have to be subservient to someone else who says they have something additional. They have something extra Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit so you can understand God's truth. That's what he's telling us. And when you look at this section as a whole, what becomes clear is that God's Spirit and God's Word are safeguards against the deception of false teachers. God's Spirit and God's Word are safeguards against the deception of the false teachers, right? Now, commentators rightly suggest that God's Spirit and God's Word enable and empower our perseverance in the faith. God's Spirit and God's Word enable and empower our perseverance in the faith. As we abide in Him and His Word in us, we will have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. This is exactly what's going on with the false teachers, right? Now, they're bold and they're confident, but they're wrong. They've not only been led astray, they are seeking to lead others astray as well. That's why they weren't part of the church. That's why they left the church. They were guilty of that. They jumped ship. They did not stay true to their claims, whatever their motivation. They did not abide in truth, and thus they had no hope for eternal life. They did not practice righteousness because they were not born of God. They were not born again. And it experienced a regeneration of the heart. They had no true faith in the Son of God. And their goal was to lead others astray. So John is writing that we would be aware of the times, that we'd understand the deception, that we'd understand the false claims, but also that we'd understand to, that the Word of God and the Spirit of God enable and empower our perseverance in faith so that we would draw close to Him. What does this mean for us? In what way are God's Spirit and God's Word safeguards? That's the question. Well, it means that we're to walk by the Spirit, friends. It means that we're to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, Paul is picturing a life that is continually yield 
continually yield to the Holy Spirit, right? To walk in the Spirit is to live in constant recognition of and in submission to God's presence and to God's will. How do we do that? The Spirit just isn't giving us this wisdom or this knowledge, you know, mystically and in a way that is apart from the Word of God. No, He works through the Word of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. So we recognize then our need. We call out for wisdom and we immerse ourselves in God's Word. God's Spirit and God's Word enable our perseverance. But we are called, as John calls us, to abide in His Word. To abide in the truth. To know the truth. To believe the truth. Too often we neglect it. Too often we neglect God's word and we leave ourselves open to being led astray. That's why John's saying, look, you have the spirit. Abide in what you heard from the beginning. Abide in the truth. Abide in the gospel. Abide in the testimony of God. You don't want to be led astray? Then focus on God's word. And trust God's spirit to teach you in these Things. And just a side note, you know, we read verse 19 and we see that there are these false teachers who are part of the church. Okay? They're part of the church, but it becomes clear that they don't believe what the church believes. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They don't believe that salvation is found only and fully in Him alone. They left. But what we see here is implicitly that the normal Christian life involves being part of the local church. It involves being connected to other believers in Christ. Which, by the way, the author of Hebrews says is also a safeguard and encouragement for us as we battle, uh, as we seek to persevere in the faith. Friendships, biblical community, encouragement from other brothers and sisters in Christ to carry on. The confession of sin together. The, the, the understanding that we're not perfect. That we need God's grace. And the encouragement that we have in walking this journey together. This journey of faith together. And when we remove ourselves from such encouragement and accountability we can be like an ember that's separated from the fire. Take that one ember out and it quickly grows cold. But when those embers are all together, there is a warmth. There is a a heat that continues. So friends, John wants us to be aware of the times. He wants us to understand the danger of the times. But he also wants us to be confident. Because for those who are in Christ, God's spirit and God's word are safeguards in our perseverance. So let's avail ourselves of His grace and let's seek after Him with all that we are. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank You for loving us the way You do. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for changing us. Lord, thank You for giving us grace. Lord, it's our prayer right now, collectively, that You would help us. Help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to abide in truth. Help us to walk by your Spirit. 
But Lord, we also pray for those who are apart from faith in Christ, maybe even here this morning. We pray that your spirit would so stir in them a desire for more, a desire to know you, a desire to be connected to you. But I pray that you would make very clear the consequences of sin. And I pray that you'd make very clear the hope that is found only in and through Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Lord, and I pray that people who are apart from Christ would just be tired of seeking to be made whole through their own efforts. And that there would be life. God, work. In this room, work. And in our relationships outside of these walls, work, God. Give us an urgency for the gospel that we might speak truth and we might love others. Even as Toby testified earlier, just neighbors loving neighbors well. Co-workers loving co-workers well with truth, with gospel. Make us what we are not for your glory, Lord. Help us to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we're going to end with a time of invitation and worship. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and sing. But if you have questions about the message, if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, what it means to join this church family, or what baptism is, we encourage you to come talk to us. If not now, right after the service is over, we are available. Please come find us and talk to us. Would you stand and respond as the Spirit leads?